This is Greg Amortis from Land of the Creeps Horror Podcast, and you're listening to the Horror Movie Podcast, where they are dead serious about horror. <laughs> Welcome to Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. We have a bi-weekly show that's released every other Friday, and this is episode 121. This is a Frankensteinian episode, which is one of our variety shows. And on Horror Movie Podcast, you'll hear in-depth horror movie reviews, especially for new releases, with ratings and recommendations to help you decide whether you should buy, rent, or avoid these movies. And I'm your host, Jay of the Dead, podcasting from Salt Lake City, and my co-hosts tonight are... Dave, Dr. Shock Becker from just outside Philadelphia, PA. And Wolfman, Josh, and Jay pretend to be scared of me. <laughs> well, sometimes I am, especially when I get you all stirred up, Joshua. So <laughs> I don't even have to pretend. I got two things to tell you guys really fast on a personal note, and then we I want to get into some cool stuff that Josh has for us. But uh, I was cleaning in the basement, and I know this isn't a great, exciting way to start the, the show, but I was in this random bag of like musical equipment because I used to be a musician and I found this wrinkled up sheet of paper and I looked at it and I'm like what is this and I guys I'm not lying it is the agenda the format where we planned out the very first episode of horror movie podcast episode one where we talked about the horror genre and our top 10 favorite horror movies and it is this little treasure here i mean it's incredible i have like the whole list of each of the topics for listeners out there if you've never heard episode one of this podcast it has uh Dr. Walking Dead, Kyle Bishop, Wolfman Josh, and me. Uh, Dr. Shock had not joined us yet because I had not worked up the courage yet to ask him to uh, join us on another (laughs) venture because he was used to me bailing on previous horror podcasts and I didn't want him to yell at me, but he was very nice and joined us. But anyways, if you haven't heard episode one, it's like a four hour show where we delve into the horror genre and I think you dig it. So... That's a little treasure, guys. I guess nice. that's that's really cool. Yeah, keep that for posterity. I have no idea how it got in my basement well, in put, that bag. Put that in the in the HMP museum. That's right. <laughs> that that could be that could be the first the first uh, artifact in the HMP museum. <laughs> that's right, brother. The other thing, and this was really cool. I was on a vacation this previous week in, in Long Beach, California, with my family. We went to the beach, and when I was down there, I walked into this grocery store. And I had my horror movie podcast t-shirt on. It was the one with the white letters. And the the bagger guy in the grocery store, he's like, oh, that's cool short. Cool shirt. I love horror movies. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, seriously, I love them. And I'm like, well, have you ever listened to horror movie podcasts before? And he's like, no. He's like, but I'll have to check it out. And I'm like, sure. So I pulled out one of those cards. And I gave it to him. And so um, to my buddy Wait, there. The, car, the card that Greg's cat has? That, exactly. I, I got these from Greg. I actually purchased them from Greg's cat. And, and anyways, 
And he said he was going to check it out. And I was so excited about that and really pumped up. And, and so if, if that guy there from the grocery store, I want to welcome you if you're listening, sir. You made my vacation. And then I walked like two doors down to, to Cafe Rio. Of course, Josh, because I have an addiction. <laughs> they have those in, in uh, California, too. And I was going through the line in Cafe Rio. And lo and behold, the server was like, oh, cool shirt. And I'm like, what is going on? And I'm like, are you a horror fan? And he's like, oh, I love horror movies. And I'm like, have you ever heard horror movie podcast? And he's like, no. And so, of course, I pulled out another card, handed it to him. I'm wow. like, check it out. So my brother in uh, Cafe Rio Welcome. I hope you're listening as well. And you guys right there, you work like right next to each other, two horror buddies. So I'm just saying. Yeah. Nice. I, Did I you get the die. sweet pork? I, I, of course. Of course, brother. <laughs> I get nothing else. I, I, I saw that post on, on Twitter. Um, I didn't know that was you. I thought that was Josh who put that post out there, to be honest with you. I, I didn't realize that was you who posted that. That's mm-hmm. that's really cool. I, because you guys, you guys kind of go back and forth on... On yes. the uh, HMP account, so I'm never 100% sure which is. <laughs> well, I never post anything that's like controversial. I, I put my name on it following in Jay's okay. lead, basically. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, that that's really cool, though. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I've i always wondered if I'd ever like run into a run into a horror fan. I don't seem to ever do that. Oh, um, well, it, it, it was it was really this neat thing. And since my wife and kids were with me and witnessed this, you know, because we talk all the time uh, among our community about how cool it is to be within this group of people that's connected online who, who just love the genre and appreciate it. And to see it in action like yeah, that is very rewarding. Did I ever tell you about the time I got a free sandwich of Gandolfo's from a listener? No, tell it. No. Wow. I don't know if this is the, <laughs> the proper venue, I guess, but it was fun. It was one of those few times. It used to happen a lot when I was on the documentary blog podcast. I used to do a podcast about documentaries Loved it. for the documentaryblog.com. Um, but that site doesn't really exist anymore, so the podcast kind of shut down. But because so many people in the industry listen to that podcast, when I'd be up at film festivals like at Sundance – like people were constantly recognizing my voice and that hasn't happened as much in the horror community. I don't know. I'm just, I guess I'm not hanging around where horror people hang out as much, but, um, <laughs> but I wanted to Gandolfo's, uh, which is like a New York deli sandwich shop. When I came home from Columbia and, um, the person recognized me and gave me a free sandwich, uh, when I, when I checked out, which was awesome. <laughs> That's a, okay. So Josh, this That's is really cool. Now it's going to get really weird, and I'm sorry to the listeners and to you. So do you, do, which location was that? Just curious. This was at uh, 500, North, or 500 West in Provo, Utah. Okay, get this. I, I swear to you, I promise I'm not making this up. I, I was in Gandolfo's <laughs> in Amer- an American Fork, Utah, and um, I was, you know, I ordered my sandwich or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And the guy behind the counter says, uh, can I ask you where you work? What do you do for work? And I'm like, oh, I work at a marketing company here in American Fork, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, but do you, are you also a podcaster? And I'm like, why, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> and he's like, you're Jason, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. And, and so he knew me from not this podcast, unfortunately. He knew me from 
the Traders podcast, which is one of the shows I produced. But what's funny yeah. about that is we were both in Gandalfos, but he did not give me my sandwich for free. Damn it. So, oh, what a bummer. So, uh, this you're this girl said, this girl said, um, I said, wait, I didn't pay for it. She said, welcome home, Wolfman. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. that's, wow. that's beautiful. That's awesome. See, you're, that's awesome. you're my hero. I'm serious. That's I gotta, really I gotta, cool. I gotta, uh, are there, are there any listeners out there in Pennsylvania that can get me a free sandwich? Jeez. Poor Dave. You got to get out and get some more sandwiches, Dave. No more yeah, running really? to the Wawa for coffee. Yeah, yeah really? <laughs> so, actually, this leads us very nicely into an announcement we want to make, Wolfman, and you're the perfect man to do it. Um, speaking of, uh, <laughs> I guess, hanging out with listeners, uh, we have finally settled on... Uh, a meetup date for the movie podcast network. Do you want to tell them about that? Yeah. So we have been talking about this for a long time. We were talking about doing it in September or August and Jason got a little bit of negative feedback from some of the listeners who were saying, Hey, that's too close. The end of August, I'm not going to be able to make it. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, let's just push it to October. We'll do it in October. And um, because we had uh, been wanting to do something kind of for the Halloween season as well. So uh, I think we're looking at October 14th right now, which is a Saturday. Yes. For the meetup. And what we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to set up in like an Indiegogo account um, because we're not exactly sure how many people will come and we're trying to be a little bit more ambitious than we were last year for the Indiana meetup. We want to <laughs> run out the whole theater and mm-hmm. uh, do a screening, have a Q and a slash live podcast afterward in the theater. And so we just, you know, we don't want to put, you know, too much risk on ourselves since we're not sure how many people are going to show up. So we're going to do it in an Indiegogo Kickstarter style format. But basically all you're doing is you're pre-buying your ticket. So if you're going to come, you'll buy your ticket at Indiegogo. And if we sell X amount of tickets, we know what we're going to rent a theater of this size. If we sell Y amount of tickets, we're going to buy a theater of this size. And mm-hmm. so it's just helping us know how many people are showing up. We'll have the cash in hand and we won't have to put a big risk take a huge amount of risk nice that's actually so 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 october 14th yeah in in utah okay i am going to try i'm going to start see if i can make some plans because i would definitely love to be there oh my goodness that's my and that's and that's my birthday that's the day after my birthday so maybe i can swing swing something along those lines let me see if if i can get there the friday the 13th for dave's birthday we'll do something extra special (laughs) get there and and it's right there around josh's birthday too your birthday is right in that it's the same week yeah Mm -hmm. and and that station and and someone else on the network as well but joel robertson from retro movie geek is definitely going to be there Mm -hmm. oh that's awesome uh, we, I get to meet. I get to meet everybody at once. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, and you know, I know Utah's a little bit out of the way for some people, but we have a lot of the hosts live in Utah. It turns out, so mm-hmm. yeah, we have a much higher chance of more hosts showing up, which you know I don't think we'll ever dra- uh, drag you know Andy to a meetup anywhere else. But <laughs> we might actually get to <laughs> see him show up if it's in Utah. Maybe. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. No he- problem. He was smarting off claiming he wasn't going to come, but I think he will. (laughs) (laughs) So that is great. Well, thank you, Josh, that you explained that very well. And I'm excited about that. So, uh, so basically they stay tuned, Josh, right. For that account to be set up. I can try to set it up by the time this podcast posts, if that's helpful. Well, should we do just do that? Yeah. Yeah. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to definitely have a screening. We're definitely going to have a live podcast. We're definitely all going to go out to dinner and we'll, there'll be a few different options so that everyone doesn't feel like they have to go to the same place. Different hosts will be going to different restaurants and you can break off and go wherever you want for dinner. And then we're going to have an after party somewhere in Salt Lake because Matt, you know, the host of the sci-fi <laughs> podcast is, as Jason mentioned, is kind of the mayor of Salt Lake City. So he's <laughs> he's getting us a cool <laughs> venue for our after party where people can go hang out. As nice. Well. It'll be and so then, fun. Um, because Joel and some of the other people from out of town are going to be there on like Friday and Sunday, this is not officially part of the meetup. That will just be on Saturday. But if people are in town, we're planning a few little MPN field trips in that time to go do a fun couple of fun little activities around Salt Lake City if people are around for that's awesome. The rest of the days of that weekend. So yeah, I know on Friday nice. I'm going to be trying to squeeze in a movie or so because I I have homework you know each week yeah. that I have to get done. So people. <laughs> well, wanna... we were all talking about going to the Void. Possibly, I don't know if people heard our discussion about that on the Sci-Fi so podcast. Cool. But... Yeah. Doing the Ghostbusters virtual reality thing that's in Utah, which is amazing. And uh, mm-hmm. some other fun little things we're hoping to nice. hook up. So Yeah, I, I think it'd be worth people's time. And the thing is, the Indiana meetup last year was, was very fun. I mean, that's what people said. That was the consensus that I heard. But I think this will be even more fun because there's going to be more exciting things, uh, more more hosts and more people in attendance, I believe. So. Uh, yeah, we'll look forward to That's it. That's great. And That's that great. link will be in the show notes here for episode 121. Just one quick note about this Frankensteinian episode here. As usual, we had to record somewhat out of sequence as from what you're going to be hearing tonight. I mean, sometimes it's fun to uh, change it up and switch around where <laughs> people's reviews are falling. People have to jump off the podcast at different times. So anyways, basically, you're going to hear a mixed up version of the order that we actually recorded in. But I just felt like it worked best for the flow of the episode. So if um, co-hosts appear to be here during one review, but not during another, then uh, you'll understand why. But this is pretty typical of our Frankensteinian episodes. Josh, we only have you for a certain amount of time tonight, so I want to make sure we uh, move into your feature review of The Girl with All the Gifts. Rise and shine, come on up you get. Transit. Hello, Dr. Coldwell. Hello, Melanie. Morning, class. Good morning, Miss Justina. Once upon a time, there was a woman. The most beautiful and amazing woman in all the world. No! You just touched her. Watch. Please don't do that. They're only children. The Girl with All the Gifts is a 2017 horror film directed by Cole McCarthy, written by Mike Carey, based on his own uh, novel. So that's kind of cool. It is kind of a sci-fi zombie movie, essentially. And it is taking the ideas of the kind of prescient zombie that we see in Day of the Dead or Warm Bodies and kind of taking it a step further into understanding zombieism as an evolution of humanity and how zombies and humans might coexist uh, peacefully or or not at all. 
and it basically follows the story of some children who are undergoing a series of government experiments to see if they can be cured of their zombieism. And um, one of the little girls shows more promise than the others. And she's kind of our, she is our lead character in the story Mm -hmm. and she is kind of teamed up with Glenn Close, who is the doctor doing all of the tests. Um, Patty Considine, who is the sergeant in the military, who's kind of assigned to this base and Gemma Arterton, Mm -hmm. who people would recognize from like Hansel and Gretel or yes. uh, other such films. She is kind of the teacher who cares a lot about this young girl and wants to see her uh, best interests taken care of and wants to see her treated humanely. The little girl in question is Melanie played by Senia Nanua and she does an incredible job. She's got a lot to carry as a young actress and she, she does it very well. Um, But ultimately this is kind of my least favorite type of, Zombie movie. I mean, a lot of zombie movies have this military element, but it just, I just, I don't know, for some reason, it's kind of a turnoff to me. Um, it, it's well made. It There's a lot of drama in the film. It really is kind of a character exploration and almost like a sociological exploration of this thing that doesn't actually exist. So I can definitely see how people might be reading other uh, social constructs into the zombieism here. And maybe this is a stand in for other um, kind of problems that society faces, you know, with this, these two groups mm-hmm. at loggerheads and one seems to present, present a danger to the other and the other not being willing to allow um, you know, for this evolution of the species. And so it's interesting. It's a very interesting film. Um, I like it more as kind of a drama than I do as a horror film, but there's definitely horror in the film. You know, it's, it is a legitimate zombie movie, but it, it is kind of like the feral, you know, bloodthirsty, snarling monster zombies. But, and, and also there's a, there's kind of an evolution on the rules, which is always fun too. I like when a movie is cognizant of what's come before it and creates its own set of rules that, um, you know, sometimes when the films create their own set of rules, it's just like, they don't know the rules and they're just kind of disrespectful of the genre. That's not the case with this. They really uh, do it right. And I, and I appreciated that about it. Um, this won several awards. Um, it was a fantastic fest and it won for best director at fantastic fest. I feel like that was probably well-deserved. It was nominated for a BAFTA and won a British independent film award, um, and nominated for two others. A lot of, a lot of awards, uh, Sitkiss, the, the, uh, film festival, it won for best actress for the young actress that played Melanie. So, um, certainly a quality film, um, great acting. It's shot beautifully. It, it has kind of the small contained indie vibe and it does post-apocalyptic very well. Is it scary so for some reason, to it's you? Not quite my cup of tea. There are moments that are definitely scary. Okay. Um, I think though, I don't know. I guess a lot of zombie movies are about this, right? It's a lot about the downtime. It's a lot about the human interactions between attacks. Right. 
uh, the the attacks happen. And then right. The bloody gore is there, but a lot of it is kind of uh, about these humans and non-humans interacting. And then, of course, there is kind of a mystery element here because there is an evolution to the zombie rules in the world. And so we're seeing something different that we haven't seen before. So uh, there is a part of the film where you're kind of like, ooh, trying to figure out what exactly is going on and where where could this be going. And, and so that's kind of a fun new element as well. So am I reading you right when, as you describe it as, you know, predominantly a, a drama, but with certainly with horror elements. Is it kind of like The Walking Dead, where the majority of Walking Dead is just about the interactions between survivors? Or I think there's a little mm-hmm. more action than The Walking Dead typically has in an episode. Okay. Um, okay. I would say it's closer to 28 days later, later than 28 weeks later in terms of you know the amount of. <laughs> Um, I love that. That's a great, nice. uh, that, that really spelled it out for me. That was a good, good example. Okay. Girl with all the gifts. Now I see it's also streaming on Amazon prime right now. So people could watch it there. Yeah. Streaming free. If you have a subscription to Amazon prime, uh, I would recommend it as a stream for sure. I can see this being on a lot of people's year end lists. For some reason, there was just something missing where it didn't really grab me. Um, but I appreciated it and I, and I wasn't, displeased that i watched it and i can i can really imagine this making a lot of top 10 lists at the end of the year so uh for me the girl with all the gifts i i probably give it an eight and i would say uh, it's an easy rental recommendation especially since it's free for amazon subscribers okay that's excellent the girl with all the gifts i i think that's a fascinating concept i actually love to look at films that would go into the next phase of Mm -hmm. like the zombie uh, process where you know we try to figure out a way to actually coexist and and <laughs> you know I mean we we've seen mm-hmm. that beginning in um uh, I am legend right and those kind of things right. I mean there's like a hint right. of that but but how f- and if I don't know if you can say this due to spoilers or whatever but but how far into that did, does this explore it doesn't go that far. It's not like Fido or something where okay. <laughs> uh, they're like, you know, they're integrated into society. It's it's literally like, um, you know, World War Z has happened and we and the survivors have kind of um, regrouped a little bit and mm-hmm. they kind of have their outposts and they're trying to figure out what went wrong. And the doctors are kind of trying to, to see um, where do we go from here, kind of. So, Neat. Okay. Um, the world has still been destroyed, so but they kind of have their strongholds. So. Okay, excellent. That's The Girl with All the Gifts from 2017, and uh, Wolfman Josh says it's an 8 out of 10. He calls it a rental. Nice. Okay, that's good. Nice. Are you going to watch that, Dr. Shock? Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I think I will check that out. Mm-hmm. I'm excited about it, too. Thank you, Josh. All right, and at this point, we're going to move into Dr. Shock's feature review of My Little Eye. You know the number one cause of most stockings? Forgetfulness. People forget and close their curtains. Now I suddenly feel all in display. I hate this house. Take cover! Creepy ass house. Hello, can anybody hear me? Please. You guys don't have to worry. You're much more likely to be killed by somebody you know. Okay, My Little Life from 2002, directed by Mark Evans. Uh, the setup for this film, this, this is a, uh, uh, it's a film sort of uh, inspired by reality-based television uh, shows like Big Brother. Mm-hmm. That's really where Mark Evans, I think, had said he had drawn so, a lot of his inspiration for this film. 
Uh, the setup is you have these six people, I'm sorry, five people, five strangers, uh, who are, um, they agree to spend six months together in this house that's out in the middle of nowhere. Mm. I mean, they are cut off from everybody. But once it's over, they're going to get $1 million. That's the, that's the idea, that they're going to win this $1 million. Wow. Um, now, this is a web-based series. This is on the Internet. So there are webcams everywhere. There's this everywhere. I mean, there are webcams everywhere. There are webcams in places that the, these, these five people don't even realize there are webcams. Um, but the whole idea is that they're, at, they're in this house and they're going to be watched. And it is a six-month thing. Now, um, there are a few rules. Mm-hmm. One is that um, you're not, they can't go out after dark. Like there's a curfew. There's an alarm that sounds at night, and they have to stay in the house until they hear that alarm in the morning. Then they can go out and wander around, although there's really nothing to see. I mean, they are in, the, like I said, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There's like the, this wooded area around them, and then it's just snowy landscape, and that's it. Okay. Uh, but, the, but the biggest rule is, you know, there's five of them out there. If one decides to leave early, none of them get the money. Ooh. All five must stay there. Okay. Okay. So you've got a very so, strong motivation for absolutely. keeping your fellow uh, contenders absolutely. there. Okay. And what happens is this it joins them late in the game. There's about a few there's a few days left, maybe a week, something like that. There's very few days left before they get this this cash. Well, all of a sudden strange things start to happen. They would get boxes of supplies. But in, in this box, instead, they get this uh, thing with bricks in it and a letter to one of the guys saying that his grandfather has passed away and his grandfather raised him. Is it true? Are they trying to get this guy to leave early? One of the other ones, um, I think his name is Rex, pray, played by uh, uh, Chris Lemshi, okay. uh, says, look, don't buy this. Don't believe it. It's, it's you know, they're, they're trying to get you to leave. Um, the bricks were meant uh, as sort of a gotcha to this one girl, Emma, who uh, remembers a situation when she was younger with um, with a schoolmate that um, she had played a very cool joke on him. They had this whole thing where they had like this sort of gotcha where they were trying to each uh, scare each other. Mm-hmm. And she played a very cool joke on this person and the bricks played into it somehow. Um, so she's nervous. She might want to leave, but they try to convey, you know, all this stuff is going on. And one of the one of the things that's really kind of eerie about this is at night they have these this sort of um, light set up that when something passes in front of the lights, the light the lights blare in the house. So if the lights are blaring in the house, that means something's moving outside. Okay. Okay. So and they don't know what it is. By the way, I mean that that's kind of a freaky concept because if something is moving outside. The last thing you want is to, for the inside of the house to be well lit because then whatever's exactly, outside yes. can see you, but you can't see yes. them. <laughs> I mean, it lights up the whole area, but it really shines in the house. Right. I mean, it like it's blinding the lights that hit the house sometimes. Gotcha. And a lot of times it's an animal or something. One day a, a, a person does show up. Somebody who said they got lost in the snow. They're a traveler. Um, and what's really interesting is the person, first off, what's really interesting is the person who shows up is Academy Award nominee Bradley Cooper very early in his career. Oh, wow. Um, okay. he's, he has a small role in this movie. I thought that was really kind of cool because mm-hmm. the whole idea of this movie was that uh, when they made it, it was unknowns. Yeah. But then all of a sudden here comes Bradley Cooper. I <laughs> you know, like in 2000, <laughs> 2002, 
basically an unknown, not the same anymore. Right. Um, but anyway, um, he shows up, and what's interesting is, um, you know, he says, oh, I'm a tech guy and everything, and I was lost. So they're talking to him. Few of them think that he's connected to the company that hired them. <laughs> but he says, oh, no, I'm around the Internet all the time. I don't even know who you guys are. They're, you know, I'm around all the time. I've never heard of you guys. They think they're stars. They think the world is watching them through these webcams. Bradley Cooper's character is basically like, no, I've never heard of you. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, this is where things start to get, start to fall. You know, they start to wonder. This is where the paranoia sets in um, <laughs> and start wondering, you know, what exactly is going on. Things uh, start happening in the house that really only one of them could have done. Not so much that they point the fingers at each other. But you get like the viewer gets the idea like, hey, you know, this is definitely kind of there's something there's something somebody is not who they're saying they are. Right. Uh, of of uh, of of the people there. Um, and Bradley Cooper with the same thing. He's only there very briefly. And you get the feeling that, hey, this guy and there's something happens where you, ju- you know, where you're kind of like, OK, this guy could be connected to it somehow as well. Yeah. Um, the interesting what's really interesting about the movie I think is, is, is how that works. You know, how, um, first off the whole movie is, is, is shot with these cameras. Okay. It's not shot like a, it's shot with a, these, um, webcams in different areas. Okay. So that's how the whole movie shot. So what they're seeing on the internet is what we're seeing. Yeah. You don't, it's, and that's how, that's how he puts it. That's how uh, Mark Evans put it together. And there are webcams that are in places that are even kind of creepy. And I think one of the creepiest is they put one in a pen. They don't tell this girl, and she writes in a journal every night. So they're basically seeing everything she's writing <laughs> in her private journal. Okay. And cool. using using it at times against her and against the others uh, is what the feeling we get. So uh, even with it being shot with these webcams, it still manages to be sort of visually exciting um just the way that it's 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 cut together and also because there are cameras everywhere I mean, there are cameras everywhere wow so it still keeps it interesting um really though the house is what make is i think what makes it really creepy because they built this house from scratch for the film and you really get the sense that they could be a thousand miles from the nearest town i mean they shot this in canada you get the feeling there. They, they, the nearest town, it could be a thousand miles away. They are so far out in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and cut off from everybody. You know. Yikes. Um, I thought that the actors did a decent job. I'm not going to say that they're you know award-winning performances. I did like uh, Chris Lemchi. I don't know if that's how I'm, if I'm pronouncing that name uh, correctly. I'm not sure how to. Um, uh, horror fans will recognize him as he did have a key role in Final Destination Three. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did like his character. He's sort of the one who is trying to convince everyone to stay. He wants the money seemingly more than anybody else. They all want the money, but he seems to really want the money. They even do something to him at one point um, to try to get under his skin. And he basically is like, no, nah, you're not going to do it. He even turns to the cameras, flips them off and says, screw you. You're not getting under my, you're not getting into my head. <laughs> um, so I thought his character was really uh, an interesting one yeah um of course of course this is a very familiar story or or familiar setup 
okay? It's not predictable. I guess some people will be able to predict parts of it, um, and there are parts of it that maybe are a little bit predictable, but it's more familiar than anything. You know, the, the whole thing of characters cut off from everybody else, um, trying to survive something that, that you know, and, and uh, you know, with paranoia setting in and everything. Obviously, fan, horror fans, you don't even have to have seen a lot of horror movies to recognize that that sort of scenario. Yeah. Uh, you've seen it in The Thing and, and, and you know, films like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's unique enough, you know, with the with the way that they approach it, with the uh, with the cameras, um, so that uh, it, it keeps it, it. I think it keeps it. Um, even though it's familiar, I think it, it still keeps your attention and it makes it interesting. You know, it's 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 unique enough. I think is what is what I'm trying to say here. Um, and as far as a rating, I would probably give this. I'd probably say it's a seven out of ten, and I think it's definitely worth a rental. Okay. Uh, it's not found footage. It's not along those lines, but it is. You know, it's it's the whole CCTV type thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, fil- film that way. Um, and and it does. You know, uh, I can't say I loved the ending, but it's also I didn't see the ending. Uh, I shouldn't say I didn't see it coming, but certain things happen in the ending. I think that are that were kind of cool. Okay, so that's called My Little Eye from two thousand two. And yes. so when you're describing this film, there's a documentary called We Live in Public from two thousand nine. I think actually this may have preceded My Little Eye because I think it was shot. Yeah, it was shot in nineteen ninety nine. Oh, wow. Right around the Y2K thing when, when that happened. Okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. We, we Live in Public is a documentary about this um, dot-com entrepreneur, Josh Harris. And he actually put together something very similar to what you described there, where he rented out like kind of this warehouse in New York City, and he had absolutely no privacy for anybody. These people were basically locked in this compound underground. They agreed to do this, of course. Uh-huh. And everything they did was on camera, was on TV and stuff, and it was wow. web, web-based and stuff. Anyway, it's an extremely creepy thing because he actually tried that experiment a couple of times in different ways, and um, it's very troubling. So I'm wondering if David Hilton, who wrote the story and the screenplay, if he had caught wind of that, and maybe that inspired this horror film. Because honestly, even though we live in public, it's just a straight-up documentary. It's not a horror film. It is kind of terrifying to watch oh, some yeah. of it. So see everybody being watched all the time, and that you do get a, a sense of that in this film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, they have rooms where they say, you know, no webcams, you know, total privacy. They have a room like that. Um, mm. Of course, of course, only to find that that's false. You're right. Incorrect. <laughs> yes. You know that that type of thing, but. Um, well, it sounds like with that one that there was like they were in a warehouse in New York. Yeah, like in the basement warehouse. I think mm-hmm. one of the things that got me as I was watching My Little Eye is, like I said, in the middle of nowhere, but that you don't know that these people really checked up on things enough. Oh, yeah. I mean, how do, how do they know? Do they know anything about the people that 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 are paying them, that will eventually pay them to be out there? Right. Do they do they know any of this stuff? You get the feeling that. You know, as in many horror films, they're not too bright. Mm-hmm. At least when it comes to figuring these things out, they're just assuming that everything is going as they think. And because they're cut off, they don't even have internet. They don't even have internet capabilities out there. Yeah. 
Um, so they don't know what's going on on the internet. Wow. Are millions of people watching? Is nobody watching? This sounds like a great little double feature with We Live in Public. Uh, you know, if people are going to rent this, uh -huh. as Dr. Shock recommends, it gives it a seven. Then I, I think you should watch We Live in Public first because you can see in that film, you know, actual people in a real documentary where being on camera all the time kind of starts to unravel them like they get a little bit nutty i mean it's crazy when you watch the film and so i think if you watch that documentary we live in public and then watched my little eye kind of like this double feature i think it would be um a pretty intense experience it sounds yeah, like yeah I, I think i think it would be yeah so definitely Anyways, so that's My Little Eye from 2002. Dr. Shock gives it a 7 out of 10. He says, rent it. And uh, where can they find that, Dr. Shock? Is that easily available at any place? Uh, well, let me actually give me a second here. Because it, it might be on, let me check on Amazon. Yeah, it looks like they have the disc available on Amazon at least. Yeah, they, don't have a, they don't have a streaming? Not according to IMDb, but it might not be listed. Yeah, they have the disc out there. I'm not sure on Netflix. I haven't checked Netflix. I'll check um, it but real the, fast. It, and it's not even that expensive. I mean, the disc is under $10. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, but it's hard to recommend. I'm not recommending it. A purchase. It'd be nice if I could find a place that, that this is available for for rent. It is not available to stream on Netflix, but they do have the DVD available in the United States. And, okay. And and as for um, just piggybacking here, we live in public. Also, not available to stream on Netflix, but uh, oh, there's boy. a DVD there. But you can you can stream that one. We live in public. You can stream it on Amazon for a small fee. Trying to see. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's worth it's worth checking out if you can find it somewhere. How did I'm you not get recommending it? Recommending a bio. Oh, it, I own it. It was just in your in your collection I, I, at some point. I you. Yeah, I had seen a review of it years ago by somebody who I was friends with, actually, on, on row three. And he it was during a month of October over there. And I had seen it, and I had purchased a few of the movies um, that he had covered. And this is one I got, and I just never had gotten around to seeing it. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't actually cover it on the blog. That's So that's how I had it. I've owned the DVD for years. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, and the blog that Dr. Shock is referring to, of course, is dvdinfatuation.com. We hope everybody right. checks that out. And um, at this point, let's move into Dr. Shock's feature review of Audition. All right. This is, in many ways, it is a, a modern horror classic, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also just a very unusual, it's Takashi Miike, mm -hmm. 1999 um, film that he directed. He spends the first two thirds of the movie um, creating what I guess could best be described as sort of a drama slash romance. Mm-hmm. All uh, right. He's 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 the idea is um, the, the the main character uh, and I'm, I'm going to butcher some of the pronunciations here. So, you know, forgive me. Aoyama is his name. Um, we open the movie he with the death of his wife. Um, then we jump seven year, years into the future. His young son is now a teenager. Um, he is still a widower. He is still by himself. And his son is like, hey, maybe you should, you know, think about getting remarried here. You might, you know, it's 
time's running out. He basically told him he's, he's getting kind of old, and I think it's time to, <laughs> you, you, you know, that maybe he uh, think about finding a mate. And, of course, the father doesn't think, you know, he's, he, I don't think he's, he's definitely interested. He just has no idea how to go about doing it. So he works for a film production company, Aoyama. And um, his, he has a friend who's a producer, uh, Yoshikawa. And he suggests, hey, I got an idea. Why don't we pretend we're making a movie? We'll hold these sort of mock auditions. We'll bring all these women in. You could look over their, their, you know, uh, their files and, their, and their, um, their resumes and whatnot. And you could pick the ones you want to see. <laughs> and we'll, they're basically auditioning for a girlfriend for him. They think they're coming in for a movie. But it's for a girlfriend, for him. Nothing um, could go wrong with this. Right. Yes, right. <laughs> um, Ayoyama, he's a little, he's not real sure at first. He's like, oh, that's kind of deceptive. He's not real sure about it. But he goes, okay, fine. You know, um, because especially because he sees the file for this girl, uh, Asami. Uh, now, what catches him, I mean, she's a pr- very pretty. But not just that, is that the, the fact that she's a, a former ballerina and she had this leg injury. That she had to give up dancing, but she was talking about, you know, it's almost like dying, giving up something that you love. Um, but I, um, you know, and you just press on uh, and so forth. And that impresses him more than anything. That that that's sort of the way she approaches things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he she is like I think twenty eighth out of the thirty people that they um, have at the audition, uh, and he sees her and he likes her even more. I mean, it's almost like he's just sort of keeping praise on her at the audition instead of asking questions, which is what they had done for all the other girls. Right. Um, well, anyway, she leaves, um, and he's even more infatuated with this girl than he was like when he first saw her, her profile and her picture. Uh, however, his friend, um, you know, Yoshikawa, he, he, he said, there's something wrong with this girl. There's just something not right about her, <laughs> and he couldn't really put his finger on it. Mm-hmm. Something not right about her. Um, but anyway, um, uh, Aoyama does, uh, invites her out. They go, you know, they go out and they hit it off. Um, but then we get a sort of sense of what maybe Yoshigai was talking about <laughs> in a scene where he convinces Aoyama, he goes, don't call her. Do me a favor, please. Just don't call her. Let it sit for a while. You know, don't be too eager. Don't call her. And Aoyama even though he really wants to, he's like, okay, I won't call her. Well, Mike puts shots of uh, Asami sitting in what looks like an abandoned apartment. There's like no furniture in this thing. With the phone on the floor, she is sitting there staring at the phone, waiting for it to ring, <laughs> waiting for Oyama's call. Oh, a, day, a day passes, no call. She is still sitting there staring at the phone. Oh, All right, so so we now know something that he doesn't know. This girl's a little unhinged. <laughs> yeah, a little. Or she's but, just an actor in L.A. Just kidding. Or that, yeah. <laughs> but not only that, like, while she's not moving, all of a sudden, there's this sack just sitting in a corner. <laughs> it, suddenly, it suddenly moves. <laughs> and we're like, whoa, okay. What the hell is wrong with this girl? <laughs> well, we find out. Now, the reason I'm dancing around it is because the last third of this movie right. is, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to, I mean, it's, it's insane. 
the last third of audition is absolutely insane. Yes. Um, uh, there are like conversations that happen earlier or all of a sudden different. There are what look to be dream sequences. There are fantasies. There are flashbacks. And there is an incredibly difficult, um, I don't know if I want to say confrontation, meeting between Asami and Aoyama. Yeah, okay. that's a good way very, to phrase it. Very, very difficult to watch. <laughs> that it just gets, it just continues to get worse and worse and worse as it goes on. What I really like about the movie, though, is the way that me, uh, is the way that Takashi Miike approached it. He really was just making a story about this guy looking for love, mm-hmm. and that's how he built the movie. Slowly, slowly, slowly building it up. For horror fans out there, the first hour of audition is, like I said, a drama romance. Mm-hmm. Yes, straight up. Correct. But there is no question of this being a horror movie once you get to the last twenty-five minutes, maybe half hour of the film. Um, it it will just reach levels that <laughs> there, there there are no clues <laughs> early on as to the levels that this film will eventually reach. Yeah, depths, right? Yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely exceptional. Yeah, and, and what there there was a very wise man who once said <laughs> that horror happens to those who deserve it the least. <laughs> Thanks. And that is what happens. I think it's it's almost like this is this is almost like the perfect example. Yeah, of, of that saying is is this movie. You like this guy, Aoyama, because he's a likable guy. Yeah. Okay. He's an executive. He works hard. Well, he loves his son. And he's in, in many ways, he's an audience surrogate. I mean, we identify with yes. him. We can really sympathize with what he's trying to do here. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And he's just a decent guy. I mean, even in the way he's dealing with, with Asami. Yeah, he doesn't call her for a while, but it bothers him that he's not calling her. He really does fall for this girl, and he treats her very well, you know, um, and, and really it's, it's her who makes the first move as far as, phys- you know, taking the relationship to the physical level. Mm-hmm. It's not him, um, but he really loves her. He wants to marry her and, and everything, mm-hmm. um, but wow. <laughs> Fantastic film. Yeah, if the, I, I would bet, I bet you like 95% of the audience who listens to this show, <clears throat> I bet they've seen it, but I would think so. Yeah. But for that 5%, I'm just guessing on the numbers here. If you have not seen audition from 1999, uh, Dr. Shock, right? I say buckle up and definitely oh, yeah. watch it. Cause you have Absolutely. It's a must see, must see. Absolutely. And there are, I, I, it was funny cause I was watching some of the special features on the DVD and among the people who said, uh, it's, it's funny, they were talking to one filmmaker and the filmmaker said, I don't usually get you know, scared. I can sit there and I can take anything. But I found myself really getting creeped out <laughs> watching this movie yeah. to the point it was tough to watch. And that was Rob Zombie. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. I mean, even the thing is, here's, here's why, and I won't go into any spoilers either, but like, here's one reason why this is so frightening, genuinely, is because after you reach a certain age in life and you've encountered a certain number of people, you start realizing, Hey, there are actually a lot of crazy people out there. I mean, people that are (laughs) mentally ill and disturbed and would do crazy things to you. And so when you see a film like this, you're like, 
Oh my goodness. What if right. that happened to me? <laughs> right. Because, because these are people now that, you know, they, like you said, you, you think you would know. And, and it's interesting because early on when Yoshigawa is telling him, I don't like her really that much. Don't call her. We're thinking, you know, to hell with that caller. You know, it yeah. seems like, you know, they, you're like, yeah, give her a call. She's it adorable. Seems like you guys are hitting off. Absolutely. She's very, very pretty. Mm -hmm. um, she seems very shy and unassuming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Give her a call. Um, uh, but then he doesn't call. And then we start seeing her in the apartment and we're like, oh, yeah. Maybe yeah, maybe you don't want to give her a call right away. Boy, <laughs> you know, maybe a, <laughs> if I could have Takashi Miike's uh, camera during my uh, dating years in high school and in college, yeah, right? It would have really <laughs> saved me a lot of grief because um, we could have seen if we could have seen what was going on behind the scenes. I, yes, brother, absolutely. amen to that. I'm serious. <laughs> wow. But mm. but for me, I mean, this movie. Um, this is like a 9.5, mm -hmm. I would say. And this is a, this is an own, this, oh, yeah. is, this is a movie that, and I think when you watch it a second time, I think you're going to realize, you're going to see little nuances of it and, yes. and such. And there are parts of it that you're kind of like, what the hell's happening here? Right. <laughs> Especially when it gets late in the film and it gets into like the flashbacks. Yeah. And is this, is this really happening or is this something he's imagining? Um, oh, and this conversation happened. Though, I remember this conversation from early in the film, but it didn't go this way. They're mm -hmm. saying different things now, you know, things like that. But you know that that's part of it. Um, but that, there really are scenes late in this film that I think you're just not going to. You will have the urge to turn away. Oh yeah, <laughs> or just you know, you're For not sure. going to want to. I mean, and he doesn't even show it as much as you think he is. Mm -hmm. This is definitely a situation of the mind working. You know, it's almost like in, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everyone yes. said what a gory movie that was. Right. Oh, they put that girl on the hook. You never saw her go on the hook. Yeah, not really. No. But but you're but you're like, oh my god, what? A, no, people are like, what an awful scene. Mm -hmm. That's what this is like. You don't <laughs> see absolutely everything she's doing. You see enough. Yeah. And what you see is pretty horrible. Yeah, you get the point. For sure. Yeah, yeah. But you don't see absolutely everything. But even what you don't see will cause you to turn away. Uh, yeah. And I, and I back you 100%, Dr. Shark. What you're saying is exactly right. This is like a 9 out of 10 for me. This is a must-see, and I call it a buy as well. Uh, the wicked little Japanese film here, audition from 1999. So you're giving it, you say 9.5, you say, say buy 9. it. I say 9.5. I say buy it, absolutely. I get you. That's cool. All right, so that's Audition. We uh, highly recommend it. Just uh, as we said, um, buckle up on this one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, and then, uh, Josh, I think you also had a, uh, a public service announcement of sorts regarding Colossal. Yeah, I just wanted to weigh in here on Colossal uh, because, and it's funny because we just had an interaction with Jeff Hammer this past week, longtime friend of the show, Jeff Hammer, who had posted on Twitter that podcasts and, and blogs, horror movie podcasts and blogs, do their fans and listeners a disservice when they say that a film isn't horror. <laughs> uh, and I want to get more into that conversation with him because I thought it was really interesting. And I think that's certainly something that we always struggle with on the show. And so I, you know, I thought that would be interesting to talk out at, at one point. But having said that, we're not going to do that tonight. And I am going to say Colossal is not a horror movie for people <laughs> who are wondering about it. The, there's a 2017 film by Nacho Vigalondo 
who I'm a huge fan of his work. I mean, he just has done some nice. incredible yeah. movies. You know, if you've, I mean, not everyone is going to appreciate Open Windows the way I did, but I think everyone, you know, roundly appreciates Time Crimes. I think I love oh, Time yes. Crimes. Mm-hmm. I love that movie. That is great. Mm-hmm. A good one. Yeah, definitely. exceptional. Yes. And we talked about the ABCs of death on our new school anthologies episode, his uh-huh. entry uh, apocalypse. Is that what it was called? Or Armageddon apocalypse. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. That's my favorite one. And I just think he's yep. super cool. So definitely. Um, I was glad to see a new movie from him. It is not a horror movie, which I'm a little bummed out about. We knew Anne Hathaway and Jason Sudeikis were in it and that it had a Kaiju. And so I was, <laughs> I had, I had very high hopes uh, here for this film. It, it is a quirky indie dramedy is what we have here. Mm. Very good. Um, phenomenal. One of my favorite films of the year for sure. I had a great time with this. Uh, IMDb classifies this as action first then comedy, then drama. I would say drama, then comedy with tiny, tiny bits of Kaiju monster movie stuff okay it's cool the kaiju monster movie stuff runs throughout it's the theme of the film you know uh, the the surface theme obviously the the underlying theme is much deeper and has to do with the characters and the characters as i mentioned a little bit in our killer pets episode have kind of psychic connections to the kaiju which is a cool element of the film Mm -hmm. but yeah uh, i just think for our, our horror listeners if you're only a horror fan uh, you you may be disappointed to find out that Colossal is is not a monster movie, tr- a traditional oh. monster movie. But if you like a, a good dramedy, an indie dramedy, if you like kind of like a Wes Anderson-y type of film, I think you might enjoy <laughs> this one. You know what it really feels like most to me is a Charlie Kaufman film. If you enjoy oh, films yeah. oh, nice. yeah. <laughs> being John Malkovich or Adaptation or... Interesting. Uh, Eternal yeah, that, Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Exactly. You're going to like Colossal. That's It's right in that wheelhouse right there. So, In uh, terms of uh, monster type stuff, though, mm-hmm. how, how does it relate to like the, the new Godzilla movie that we got just a couple of years ago? I mean, it's, you mean in terms of just what it looks like or in terms of interaction with the monster? Yeah, interaction with the monster. Because, I mean, we still like the Godzilla from 2014, the Gareth Edwards one. We still talked about it on this podcast and so like in, in relation i'm not trying to like you know kick the the beehive Stir or anything <laughs> yeah but i'm just I consider, wondering i consider uh-huh. godzilla a horror movie in in that it is a high stakes monster movie mm-hmm. and so i don't think um colossal even close gotcha you know, so it's almost it closer really closer to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind than anything else so so, wow. so it sounds like then you're talking eternal sunshine of the spotless mind mixed with pacific rim <laughs> no it's not it's not nearly <laughs> the amount of action as pacific rim it really is a, like a low-key indie dramedy okay and mm. then there happened to be a couple of like a giant monster and I don't, I won't spoil it, but, uh, right. and, and you know, it is have a bit of Pacific Rim there because there is a giant monster and there's a giant robot. I'll say that. <laughs> so <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Well, I, I'm actually even more intrigued after listening to your review of it. So, so Josh, what do you, how do people track this down then? How did you see this again? 
So I saw this at a special one night screening right now. It's only playing in select cities. If you go to the website, she It has the list of upcoming screenings through August. looks like it's coming to Arkansas. New Hampshire, Illinois. Oh, no, sorry. That's not Arkansas. That's Alaska. Uh, New Hampshire, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Pennsylvania again. Anyway, so it's got uh-huh. certain screening dates throughout July and August. But um, okay. then after that, I don't know. I, I assume it will go VOD after that limited screening release. Yeah. But I look for it on VOD pretty soon. Dave, it's near you. It's playing in Lewisburg and okay. Reading. Is that Reading? Is that a place? Reading. 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 Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's spelled reading, but it's pronounced <laughs> Yes. So that's where it's at near you, but it's not going to be in our nice. area again. Jim. Reading just, would be. Uh, reading would be the closest. That's awesome. Yeah. Fair enough. So you said it's to you. It's not a horror film, but what do you rate, Colossal Wolfman? Just curious. If I'm rating it purely on kind of the indie dramedy scale, mm-hmm. uh, I loved it. I mean, I'm tempted to give it a ten. I, it's probably not that good. It's, you know, it's kind of a recency bias thing. Um, <laughs> I had a great time. I, I kind of want to, I'm going to say it's a nine. Okay. And I would see it in the theater if it's near you, if you enjoy a Charlie Kaufman-esque experience. If you like the films of Michel Gondry or Spike Jones or Charlie Kaufman, you're probably going to like Colossal. Nice. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for uh, giving us the update on that. And that actually uh, segues perfectly into what I was about to talk about regarding The Beguiled. All right. At this point in episode 121 of Horror Movie Podcast, it's Jay of the Dead here, and I am solo casting. So Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock are not here with me. You're going to notice that my audio quality has changed, so for the first-time listeners out there, if you just jumped into this episode to hear my Trojan Horses at the Gates of Horror solo cast, then please know that we usually have much better audio quality. Okay, so you can check out other episodes for proof of that. I'm intentionally sacrificing some audio quality for this podcast so I can record with you from the inside of my car. And actually I have a very good reason for this even though it might seem melodramatic or cheesy. <laughs> okay, so but this location where I'm parked in my car is kind of sacred ground for my own horror podcasting journey. And so um, I'm kind of in a rural area outside of Salt Lake City, not far from my house. I'm kind of looking at some mountains and I'm sitting beside... Um, my local library but like I said it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and the reason this spot is I guess special to me for lack of a other descriptor is that it was here in this very spot that I was sitting in the fall of October 2011 as I planned the launch of the first incarnation of this podcast that you're listening to because it was initially the weekly horror movie podcast back in the day And I sat here and had a big planning meeting over the phone with Bill Shetty as we began to uh, plan the Horror Palace Network. It was his network, of course, but uh, the Weekly Horror Movie Podcast was one of the first shows that was invited and released on that network. And so we did a great deal of talking, and I was just, I was on my way home from work, and I wasn't ready to, (laughs) you know, get, we weren't finished talking, so I pulled over here and planned it all out. And then more recently, actually, I sat in this spot talking to Joel Robertson of Retro Movie Geek and Universal Monsters Cast to plan the launch of a movie podcast network. So 
I don't know. I'm kind of sentimental that way, I guess. I decided that I needed to come back here to my roots. I mean, I've loved horror since I was a little kid, of course, but I wanted to come back to my roots where it all began with horror podcasting because I'm concerned about the genre. Now, you might be rolling your eyes right now, but if you love horror cinema like I do, I think you should at least hear me out before you make snap judgments. Juan... Yes, I'm talking to Juan in Texas. But um, no matter how melodramatic this seems to you, give it a chance. So before I get into it, let me just do a couple of short prefaces. That's what I do. I'm kind of like my brother Matroid over there on the Sci-Fi Podcast. First of all, the first rule of podcasting is have a good drink. So what I did is I stopped at the uh, Chevron gas station there, and I got myself a... I actually got Pepsi this time. I need a little extra kick. (laughs) So I got Pepsi... And I I even made a little visit to the $5 movie bin just to get me in the right spirit and the right attitude. You're damn right. And I bought uh, the movie Bats. Yes, the movie Bats. You heard me right. (laughs) And I also got the taking of Pelham 123, the remake with John Travolta and Denzel Washington. Anyway, that's not a horror film, of course. But when I was checking out with Bats, this is kind of cool. I was checking out, and the girl at the counter here in the middle of nowhere... She says to me, I got a story about that movie. I'm like, tell it. (laughs) I didn't have my recorder with me at that moment or I would have, you know, brought it out for this. But she said that one day she was driving through uh, Magna, Utah, which isn't super far from here, maybe 45 minutes or so. And she said traffic was stopped and backed up. She's like, I couldn't believe it. This was Magna, Utah, which is kind of a, um, you know, it's not necessarily the place everybody wants to live, let's just say. But she said, you know, the reason it was shut down is because on Magna and Main Street, it was shut down to film the movie Bats. So I actually bought the movie from a gal who was there on set, she said. She said it was the first time on a movie set. I thought it was a weird coincidence, and it was a sign that this is going to be awesome. Just so you know, there is actually, if you don't want to hear me (laughs) for whatever reason, if you prefer reading, I actually wrote a 3,100-word blog post titled The Trojan Horses at the Gates of Horror, and that appears right before this episode at horrormoviepodcast.com. I'll have it linked in the show notes for episode 121 here, so you can find that. And um, yeah, by all means, feel free to share it on social media and get the word out there so other people can make fun of me too. (laughs) So let's get into my disclaimer here. I mean, I'm going to, what I'm going to do, since this is a long blog post, I figured people would not read this article. It's 3,100 words, but I think a lot of the listeners might endure my solo cast in my car, you know, if I'm just talking through it as part of the podcast. So I'm going to try to make it part of the podcast. I probably will be reading some of it, but I'm going to try not to sound like I'm reading, but I'll, I'll just kind of follow this like talking points, like a professor. Someone like Kyle Bishop, maybe. Anyway, the views of this presentation here, Trojan Horses at the Gates of Horror, they do not reflect, okay? They do not reflect my co-host, Wolfman Josh, (laughs) Dr. Shock, Dr. Walking Dead, or Horror Movie Podcast at large, or its community. These are strictly the views of me, Jay of the Dead, and I'm just going to put it out there like that. I'm going to stand behind it. Uh, So they may or may not agree with these sentiments, but uh, this is for people who are dead serious about horror movies, so I hope you'll give it a listen. So this is broken into three parts. I tackle three different topics in 
There's three different sections to the blog, and I'm going to try to incorporate it all into one major theme, which is this Trojan horse thing. So the first thing is, uh, yes, we keep fighting, but for good reason. So in classic horror movie siege narrative fashion, you have monsters at the gates trying to get in to reach um, the horror genre and its fans. And that may sound a little bit dramatic, but, you know, we're on guard duty here. And guard duty can be tedious. And I think sometimes these conversations that we have when we fight about what's horror, what's not, that's tedious too, but it's also important. Recently, my friend Jeff Hammer, who's a horror critic, a podcaster, and uh, a good friend of ours, friend of the show, in essence, he said that uh, horror film critics and podcasters do their audiences a disservice by constantly rehashing the arguments over whether a film is horror or not. Wolfman Josh mentioned that earlier in this episode. And uh, it stood out to us. I think maybe a lot of listeners out there, a lot of you may maybe feel that way. And so don't turn this off yet because that isn't really what this is about. It's actually going to be about why it's crucial to have those kind of discussions in part. Okay, so stick with me. We horror fans tend to instinctively make value judgments about um, these installments in the genre. It's like this inherent thing with us where we we try to revisit the same old discussion points that people are fighting about over and over. We keep coming back to this. We want to know, you know, if something is genuinely uh, representative of the horror genre because um, we are guardians at the gate, so to speak. So if you'll permit a weird kind of illustration, this is an analogy of this phenomenon, the way it works in history and why I think it's important. So back in April 1985, the Coca-Cola company made some drastic changes to its flagship product, Coca-Cola, and it introduced what they called New Coke, or it was later renamed Coke 2, (laughs) with the Roman numeral 2 after it. I remember this. I actually had that. I totally remember this. And the Coca-Cola company, they just wanted to basically compete with Pepsi and their other competitors in the marketplace. I mean, they were trying to improve their product. And so what they did is they discontinued that original version, tried to ramp up the new Coke and uh, get that going. But I can tell you from living through this, I remember this happening. There was um, an outcry in the late 80s, early 90s, and consumers were mad about this. And if you go to the blog post that I described, I got links to different things here that you can see if you want to look at more information on this for some reason. But my memory of these events can vouch for the accuracy of the Wikipedia entry that says, quote, the American public's reaction to the change was negative, even hostile, and the new cola was a major failure. And though the Coca-Cola company kept the new Coke out on the market for quite a long time. I think it was till 2002. It was within three months of that new Coke formula's release that the company went ahead and reintroduced the original formula back to the market again. They rebranded it as Coca-Cola Classic, and people were happy once again. And uh, sales, they kind of skyrocketed. You know, they the original formula, that is, for that, not for the Coke 2. But they improved And that led to people having these theories that maybe Coke was just trying to make people appreciate it again. And like, you know, don't know what you got till it's gone kind of thing. Like a marketing ploy. And so as I mentioned, and I believe this personally, I think Coca-Cola was just sincerely trying to do something to improve their product. And uh, they stand by that too. So that's what happened in that story. Now, of course, art 
is kind of a different situation than soft drink sales. I, I, I get that. But I think similar principles apply. You got filmmakers in the United States who have a, a wide range of creative and artistic freedoms uh, because of our constitutional rights, thank heavens. So I'm not suggesting, nor would I ever suggest, that the horror community would try to restrict any artist's vision through any sort of, like, you know, gatekeeping, you know, that you can or cannot make this particular thing. But I do recommend that we continue to stand watch as we have been and that we're aware of what's coming through the gates. As a Coca-Cola classic lover myself, I can't imagine a world where, like, if the Coca-Cola company um, decided to produce Coke Classic, Coke 2, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, all this other, you know, these variations, and they put it in the same can with no distinguishing difference between the labeling, and it just when you bought it, you got one of those and you didn't know what it was. So even though... I personally don't enjoy any of those other flavors. I think, <laughs> for me, because I wouldn't enjoy those, it would be very problematic for me. And so I'm just saying, I think it's important to be able to differentiate between this flavor and the next prior to purchasing that product. Now, I love and respect my friend Jeff Hammer, but I have to disagree that rehashing the same old argument is a disservice to the horror community. In fact, I think it's both healthy and helpful to the genre as well as its fans. So all that I was just talking about kind of served as a, a, a preface to a couple of important examples of the value in assessing uh, the horror genre. Okay, so then part two of my blog or discussion here is titled Horror Isn't Over or Making Up New Names for Things That Have Already Had Names for Decades. First, I have to take issue with a recent but well-meaning article by Steve Rose. It appeared on TheGuardian.com on uh, July 6, 2017. I've got that linked in the show notes in episode 121 of Horror Movie Podcast. I encourage you to go read it. I think you should read it. And um, I'm going to talk about the article here, but I don't want you to take my word for it. I mean, feel free to read what Mr. Rose had to say in its entirety because I read it a couple times. But I'm just going to go ahead and summarize in short what I think he was suggesting here and Steve Rose suggests that a new breed of horror is creeping into and taking over the cinema. He says that this new horror replaces jump scares with existential dread and uh, Steve Rose appears to have created a term to describe this new breed that he calls post-horror. Okay, that's his term, post-horror. I think he made it up the way he phrases it in the article. Seems like he made it up. And to be honest, he didn't really go into why he named it that. And so I have some serious issues I'm going to get into. But first I want to say, I don't know Steve Rose. He seems to be a horror fan who loves and appreciates the genre. Clearly he thinks about it a lot. So he's my kind of people, so to speak. And I respect a lot of what he was trying to do in his article. So, you know, it's I, I'm not being disrespectful to the guy. I'm simply disagreeing, okay? So... And in fact, I vehemently disagree with the term post-horror. I think that it could actually be harmful to the horror genre. And I want to go so far right here on the record on Horror Movie Podcast. <laughs> I would recommend that we horror fans reject that term and not use it. Sorry, Steve, but I'm going to explain why. After reading the article, as I said, he doesn't really elaborate on why he chose that phrase post-horror. But I have a few theories 
And so I'm going to try to at least address, I guess, what he was going for. I don't know. It's really hard to say without knowing exactly where he came up with that name. But I wondered if he meant post-apocalyptic horror, you know, like it was short for that. But the thing is, horror cinema over the decades has naturally undergone transformations that reflect the suffering and the troubles of societies, not just in the United States, but around the world. And so whether it was the Great Depression, all these wars we've had, and then, you know, moving into the new millennium, widespread terrorism and so forth. So not just in the United States, but all over the globe, I think the world changed after September 11th, 2001. And I believe that this glut of zombie movies and infected movies and these other post-apocalyptic horror narratives that we've been seeing, that they're a reflection, a direct result of that change of 9-11. Now, I'm not suggesting that we call this film movement as of, you know, September 11th post-9-11 horror because I think that's a little bit too ethnocentric. There are real-life horrors all around the globe and they've been going on long before 2001 okay so my point is though i could accept calling this new era of horror we're seeing since 9-11 i could accept calling that post-apocalyptic horror even though not all of it is post-apocalyptic obviously but i do think we see a prevalence of that kind of narrative but you know he could have meant other things I'm very uncomfortable with the ambiguity of the term post-horror. And so if he's using the prefix post, which means after or subsequent or later, then I really have a problem with that usage because horror isn't over. We are not in an era that is after horror, okay? And to suggest that we are or to try to push that forward into the thinking of, um, you know, the film community and the cinephiles around the world, that's just not good for our genre because it's frankly not true. I mean, you know, in 2016, we had many, many great horror films. I mean, a lot of people were saying that it was one of the best years we've had in a long time. And so maybe Mr. Rose was trying to coin a, a genre-specific term that was like similar to the phrase postmodern. But I'm again, I'm happy to report horror isn't over. So that just doesn't work. And we're not in an era when horror no longer exists. So it's alive and well. If Rose is referring to post-horror as like the aftermath of horror or the remains of what's left after horror has already taken place, then that's not horror at all. That genre is already has a name, and it's called drama. So I don't want to be redundant here, but I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this. So if, if your film begins when it picks up where the victims or survivors are just starting to like pick up the pieces and recover after the horror has all gone down, in other words, the horror happened before the film started. So we didn't even see it. It was all off camera. It was before your story began. And they're just trying to cope and recover after this traumatic experience. Again, that's no longer horror. That's simply a drama. So, in episode 81 of Horror Movie Podcast, back in the day, I did a, a similar thing as I'm doing now. I attempted to, I, well, I, I, I made a big stand and <laughs> made a lot of noise, and some people liked it, but most people were, you know, gave me some uh, pushback and resistance, which is fine. I expect to receive that from this as well, but I attempted to delineate uh, the horror genre and divide it into this classification system that encompassed all of the subgenres that fall under the horror umbrella into three main categories, which were classic horror, hybrid horror, and primal horror. 
Now, classic horror includes, like, traditional monster movies with, like, vampires, werewolves, zombies, etc. And then hybrid horror includes a blend of horror subgenres, like you get a zombie movie and a vampire movie blended together, or maybe it's just a horror subgenre and a non-horror genre, okay? So something like that, like um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. You know, that's, like, that's a crazy hybrid because it's, like... It's comedy, it's action, it's horror, it's also drama, also kind of a period piece, right? So that, you know, that's hybrid horror. And then primal horror is my category for housing the the more realistic universal fears, the things that we find um, or that come up within ourselves anytime there's like this innate uh, universally like <laughs> like vulnerable aspect of our psyche. I consider this all falling under like survival horror subgenre. And this last category, by its very nature, I mean it it, it kind of fades out into the fringes and eventually crosses over into non horror genres such as like thrillers and and dramas. Usually, I mean that's usually what happens if you were to like somehow uh, chart all this out. Which you wouldn't because you're not insane like I am. But in this article, Rose lists a few films that he would consider to be a part of this new breed of horror that he calls post-horror. And those include It Comes at Night, A Ghost Story, The Witch, Personal Shopper, and he names some others. But in my review of It Comes at Night, I called that pure survival horror because it's grounded in this cold, gritty reality that speaks to primal, universal fears of self-preservation and the preservation of your loved ones. And so to me, It Comes at Night is clearly situated in the primal horror category. Now, some people don't even consider that film, It Comes at Night, some people don't even consider that to be a horror movie. They might just classify it as a thriller or a drama, but regardless of where you categorize It Comes at Night, the terms horror, thriller, and drama, all those genre terms sufficiently describe that film. It's not necessary to make up some ambiguous term such as post-horror. It's just not needed in this case. So let's consider The Witch, because he named that in his list. Now, this is easy to me. It's classic horror. It has an actual witch in it that's terrorizing a family in the woods. That's simple. It's a horror movie. It's a witch movie. And so we don't need to confuse matters by calling it post-horror or Coke 2. We don't need to rename it. It already has a name. It's a horror movie or a witch movie, period. And it falls under the classic horror designation as far as I'm concerned. Now, is the witch grim? Yes. Is it bleak? Yes. Is it about a hidden enemy who stealthily infiltrates and destroys a family from within? Yes. Is the witch reflective of our modern fears of having these terrorist cells embedded and hidden within our country trying to destroy us from within? Yes. Well, I'm telling you right now, that's just good old-fashioned horror, my friends. And it is representative of the times that we live in. Now, it's not solely applicable to our era, though, even though it does represent the time we live in. It represents lots of eras. I mean, we've we've seen these same themes in horror cinema back in the 70s with The Exorcist, or even in the 50s with Invasion of the Body Snatchers and so on. I mean, it goes, that is not a new concept, uh, nor is it a new theme. Now, here's the thing. 
I will be the first to admit that it's fun to try to coin new academic phrases or pseudo-academic phrases to try to analyze the horror genre. I do it myself, but still, I propose that we outright reject the term post-horror because it's ambiguous, it's imprecise, and it's incorrect. If you were going to call this something, I'd feel better about calling It Comes at Night organic horror, where the events of the film are not fantastical, but instead they're ultra-realistic and authentic in their verisimilitude, or the way that they represent our real world. It imitates our own natural world and our everyday life experience. But again, the thing is, I don't need to make up phrases like organic horror as much as I love it, because the designations horror, thriller, or drama, those already exist, everybody knows them, and they are quite sufficient. So let's continue to analyze the horror genre, its new releases, and any types of film movements that we can identify, but I propose that we reject and discontinue the use of the term post-horror. Okay, part three. Don't let them in unless you know what they truly are. First, for this section, a little context. There's an ancient Latin epic poem. I've never read it myself. It's called, like, um, Aeneid. <laughs> I don't even know how to pronounce it, to be honest. It was much easier to write it. Damn it. But uh, it was written by Virgil. No Willis Wheeler, not Ted DiBiase's bodyguard. <laughs> But it was written way back when, sometime between 29 and 19 BC. Supposedly, this is the primary source of the tale of the Trojan horse, but most people will have read about it at some point, most likely in their humanities class when you had to read Homer's Odyssey, right? <laughs> That's probably when, but I mean, people are familiar with this, right? In short, the story goes, during Greek mythology's Trojan War, the Greeks built this gigantic wooden horse and hid a small team of soldiers inside in order to breach the strong walls of the city of Troy. Okay, so that's kind of the premise of that story. And what happened was after the Greeks feigned retreat, the Trojans saw the horse outside their gates and they brought it into the city as a victory trophy. But at night, the soldiers that were inside the horse, they escaped, and then they let the rest of the Greek army into the city. And so this uh, horsing around, so to speak, led to the fall of the city of Troy. Now, I titled this, this article, and I'm titling this uh, solo cast right here, Trojan Horses at the Gates of Horror. And as a devout horror fan myself, I am concerned, as I said earlier, that something very similar to this, this equestrian stratagem, is being employed to gain access to and to exploit this faithful horror community. This trend is something that I think reinforces my feeling that we need to continue making determinations about what's horror and what's not, or at least what sort of subgenre of horror we're dealing with. I think we need to identify what it is we're talking about, and I think we need to be very verbose. I think we need to communicate that to one another through uh, social media, through our communities, through podcasts, through film criticism, in every way we can so we know what we've got, we know what we're dealing with. Now, we all know that many marketing entities and distributors have blurred the lines of genre, especially in the last 10 years or so, because they want to tempt horror fans to rent or buy films that appear to be horror. And then we do. We're often disappointed when this happens. But I am happy to say that I think the horror community 
their debates about what's horror and what's not. They have helped to sound the alarm on these and get the word out in the most egregious cases, and I think that's good. But now I think there's something even more insidious that's starting to happen. This uh, We are at the very beginning of this trend, and I'm telling you listeners, I hope you'll remember this. And if I'm wrong, you can like play this clip back to me and make fun of me in the future. But we are at the beginning of this new thing that's happening where films will actually feature some of the trappings of horror cinema and um, a lot of times we use the term horror elements. I actually think it's even like smaller than that and when they present something as horror, not just in the marketing, but actually within the film itself and they provide horror within the film, what that does is it helps them make very convincing horror trailers or what appear to be horror trailers. But in reality the film is something else entirely They've just used those few, um, I don't want to say horror elements, but they've used those few aspects of the film in order to try to pass it off as horror and to lure us in. Now, is this a conspiracy theory? Am I being paranoid? Are they actually this sneaky? If you've ever learned or heard about the way these films are screened and tested, like the test screenings and audience polling and stuff like that, trust me, they try every strategy they can to make a lot of money at the box office on opening weekend. You better believe it, and I'm serious about that. Anyways, I predict we're going to see more and more films that do this. It's going to happen more often because horror is such a profitable genre, and it has a loyal purchasing community. We spend a lot of money on horror. But for now, I'd like to consider one interesting case. It's a Trojan horse of a film called The Beguiled from 2017. It was directed by Sofia Coppola. Now, the first thing I should mention, which I forgot to mention when I talked about this film over on Movie Podcast Weekly, our sister show, is that this is actually a remake from a 1971 film of the same name. It stars uh, Clint Eastwood, and I have not seen that film. Uh, Don Siegel is the uh, director of that original version of The Beguiled. But from what I can tell through my research, this new Coppola version appears to be the same story. Okay, so both films, the 1971 film and the 2017 film, they were adapted from a Thomas Cullinan novel. And even this new incarnation, she credits the screenwriters of the 71 film as well. Now, I think Sofia Coppola also, you know, took a pass at writing her adaptation from the novel. I've never read the novel, as I said, so maybe both films are just really faithful to adapting it because they look really close. But uh, the point is, Sofia Coppola, this is not an original story. She did take her own pass at writing this new version for the big screen. So there you have it. Now, what I would encourage you to do is to watch this trailer for yourself and pay attention to its tone. I mean, this is an audio podcast, so I'm going to insert a clip of it here um, in just a second. But if you end up watching it, which I would recommend, and I'll, I'll link that in the show notes too. That'll be linked in the blog. You'll be able to see it in there. But basically, uh, you'll see that the tone the lighting, the soundtrack in the trailer, the red letters on the black screen. I mean, after watching that, it clearly seems ostensibly <laughs> like a horror film. And at least I believe that it's been marketed like a horror film. And I think that was intentional. By contrast, if you compare the 1971 trailer, which again, appears to be the same exact story, it is not marketed as horror in the same way. I mean, there is uh, quite a significant difference between the two. 
So without further delay, for the audio listeners out there, let's go ahead and hear a portion of the trailer from 2017's The Beguiled. We ask for your protection over our school and we pray that we will be kept from harm throughout the night. Amen. Amen. dead? No. Get him inside. Quick! If you could have anything in the world, what would it be? To be taken far away from here. Come with me. He seems to be a sensitive person. Does he? Seems the enemy is not what we believe. I hope you like apple pie. Is that my recipe? It is. <gasps> I need rags. I need chloroform. Go to the smokehouse. Get the saw now. Bring me the anatomy book. Can I get you anything? Give me the key. You know I'd get in trouble for that. Okay, so you just heard that, right? And I hope you ended up watching it because, and you've probably seen it before, to be honest. But horror fans, I'm here to tell you right now, The Beguiled from 2017 is not a horror film. It's actually a dark Jane Austen flavored period piece drama that could be argued as a feminist film, okay? But The Beguiled is set during the American Civil War. You've got this Confederate women's finishing school. They're just... They discover this wounded Union soldier. They take him in, and uh, they try to nurse him back to health. And this awkward arrangement leads to some uh, romantic intrigue and other unpleasantness. I'll just say it like that. And that is the premise of this movie. But again, not a horror film, okay? So I'm serious about that. Go ahead and watch it. But you will not be seeing a horror film if you watch The Beguiled from 2017. Now, I know many horror fans, including me, were anxious to see this film because it appears to be such. But what we have here, listeners, is a bait-and-switch situation. Now, unfortunately, The Beguiled goes a little farther beyond the marketing bait-and-switch. It actually spends some of its runtime masquerading as a drama horror film, right? And, and I say that as like a specific subgenre mix there, drama, horror. We all know that horror movies are usually dimly lit. you got heavy shadows and they, they cast this uneasy feeling of um, impending doom, right? It leads to paranoia, like there's something hiding in the corners of the screen or in the shadows ready to attack. And since this is a realistic period piece that's set in 1864, Coppola uses candles and natural lighting. So when you do watch this movie, it looks like a horror film. It has the look of a horror film. 
and maybe a Jane Austen movie. It's like this weird blend, as I said. But if you watch the trailer of the 1971 film, the Clint Eastwood one, you can see that that is also a period piece. They also use like period lighting with candles and so forth. But Coppola's version more closely resembles the modern horror cinema of our day. And I believe this was a deliberate choice. Now, in The Beguiled, there's darkness in the cinematography and there's also darkness in the themes of the film. There are a couple of disturbing and tragic violent sequences that I suppose one could cite or argue. They could say The Beguiled is a horror film of sorts because of these couple of sequences. But I would say, at best, it's situated out on the fringes of what I might refer to as primal horror or organic horror, okay? But honestly, I think most of the horror community would be with me on this one for once. (laughs) And they would just view this as a Jane Austen drama that has a little bit of grit to it. I think that's how they would view it. If you've seen it, you know, let us know in the show notes here for episode 121 where you weigh in. Now, here's where I uh, have the uh, potential to go off the rails. I'm going to be really careful here because I said before I could argue that The Beguiled is a feminist film. And I will also acknowledge that um, one could also argue that it is not a feminist film. I'm not going to get into that debate here. That's not what I'm interested in at this moment. That's not what I'm trying to cover with you. But let's just assume for a moment just assume that it is a feminist film. Then I have this wild conspiracy theory. Now, this is probably bogus. It's just speculation. It's kind of fun to think about. But this little theory I have feeds into my Trojan horse analogy. Okay, now this is where people in the audience start calling me insane. But I don't care. Hear me out. Just listen. What if... I don't know this, but I'm just speculating. What if Sofia Coppola intentionally chose to adapt this story specifically for its feminist slant? And what if she wanted to target the horror genre and its viewers because horror, unfortunately, is infamous for its objectification and violence toward women? So, like, here's a little example um, that I want to set up for you. If you have a dog, have you ever had to give that dog a pill to swallow? What you do is you coat it in peanut butter and you stick it in the dog's mouth or let it lick it off your hand or whatever. And if you hide the pill inside the peanut butter, the dog will take it. That's just, it's weird, but that's what they do. Well, in similar fashion, what if Coppola dressed this feminist antidote, right, of a film up in a horror Halloween costume, so to speak, giving it the the trappings of horror, the appearance of horror, okay? This is all very Trojan horse style here, in order to sneak medicine, quote-unquote, through the gates into the horror community. What if she wanted to do that? I'm telling you, Trojan horses are at the gates of horror. Now, before you think I'm nuts, I just want to say I completely support gender equality, of course, and any sort of education or advocacy against chauvinism or violence toward women. Naturally, I support things that help promote gender equality. Absolutely. But I would still condemn a Trojan horse pill in the peanut butter approach that's a a sneaky way of trying to get messages through particular gates, such as our horror gates. I think important messages should be put out there to communities, but I think they should be bold and forthright. I don't think you should hide the pill in the peanut butter. I think you need to be bold about your message because if it is important, then you need to stand by that importance and not be sneaky. Now, again, if 
Sofia Coppola ever read this article, this blog article, which she won't, or if she ever heard this podcast, which she won't, <laughs> she would probably think I'm as loony as you do. Because honestly, she's probably doing no such thing and just trying to make a great film here. But side note, as dramas go, The Beguiled is a fine film. I will say that. I'd rate it a 7 out of 10, and I think people who appreciate dramas, particularly dark dramas, should rent it. I'd call it a rental. 7 out of 10. But the fact remains that some films are being disguised as horror now, and they are exploiting our community. Now, I recognize that in modern cinema, again, we've said this earlier, the lines between genres are blurring, and they're not nearly as distinct as they once were, and that's fine. I'm just saying don't market a drama to me as a horror film. It's flat-out false advertising. Of course, I support artistic expression, freedom of speech, creativity, etc., all that. But as far as I'm concerned, filmmakers have every right to make whatever kind of film they want, even if it's a film like Unfriended from 2015. (laughs) But we horror fans also have every right, therefore, to call them like we see them, which in the case of The Beguiled, it is a Trojan horse at the gates of horror. If studios have a motion picture that they want to market to the horror community, I'm talking about us now, then they just need to be straightforward with us. Make sure your marketing represents your film. I know that movie studios don't listen to this podcast, and they especially don't listen to Jay of the Dead here, but I'm just saying, wouldn't it be nice if you market a film in such a way that's representative of the cinema that you will be experiencing when you buy your ticket and pay your hard-earned money that you could have spent on a Pepsi at Chevron and $5 on the movie Bats. Okay, that's what I'm saying. So if you have a message in your film that you'd like to present to the horror fans or horror community, then deliver it by all means. I want to commend a film. I want to celebrate a film right now. One non-Trojan horse exemplary film is Jordan Peele's Get Out from 2017. It's an important film. And it's also replete with social commentary and insightful themes. And it's also unequivocally a horror movie. So in conclusion here, it's time to wrap this up, okay? I just want to level with you. I'm here. I've, I've revisited the sacred origins, for me at least, of where Jay of the Dead decided to start horror podcasting. This is where it all began. This is where I'm going to continue from. I'm here to fight for the genre. And so I'm going to come full circle here and finish off where we started. Yes, we are still fighting about the horror genre, what's horror and what's not. And I hope we will always be willing to fight about the horror genre, what's horror and what's not, because that's exactly how we will continue fighting for it. I would love to hear your thoughts about all of these ramblings. If you have some time when you're maybe on on the subway or taking the bus or when you're eating your cereal, <laughs> like whenever, go ahead and read the blog form of this if you think you could stomach it again, because I'm actually much more articulate as a writer than I am a speaker. So um, I probably communicated it better in my blog, but I would appreciate it if you were willing to, you know, help get the word out there on this article. Uh, that post-horror thing, that got a lot of attention. And I'm not, I'm not about trying to get attention 
I don't really care about that because honestly, the more attention I get, uh, usually it's negative attention. So it's not that I'm trying to seek attention, but I do want to get this message out there. I think that we need to protect the genre as guardians at the gate. So signing off on this little solo cast from my car here, this is Jay of the Dead. I am the host of Horror Movie Podcast, and like you, I am dead serious about horror movies. All right, Dr. Shock. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you join us tonight here on a horror movie podcast. I know that it's very late for you. And so uh, could you tell the listeners all the places that they can uh, keep up with you on the Internet, please? Absolutely. I'm over at the DVD infatuation.com, um, the blog, posting reviews. I am starting to. I, I have been um, there have been lapses in it recently. Um, just uh to explain those those were actually purposeful uh purposeful was it? yeah i guess that's mm-hmm. right i'm sorry i've had a couple beers here okay <laughs> um uh, uh but those were purposeful uh because i realized that you know i had missed some previously and i realized that my 2500 was going to hit in the middle of october or at the beginning of october mm. and i couldn't have that because i know what movie i want to be 2500 and it will not fit into the 31 days apart gotcha. so i purposefully missed like five days here three days there so now it's to the point it's finally into the beginning of november where 2500 will be so at this point forward i'm i'm dedicated to to posting a new review every day until i finally get to um to that 2500 so there should not there will not be any more lapses okay uh in the posting well there had Um, better not be no, I'm no, just kidding. No, yeah, no, I understand. But <laughs> but no, and then it was, it, you know, 2016 and the beginning of 2017, just with everything going on. But I really feel dedicated. Now I'm dedicated. This is going to be done. I think it's around November 3rd, something like that, um, mm-hmm. that I'm finally going to hit 2,500. Um, and it will get me through the 31 days of horror, um, which I'm already, I've already got um, uh, a little box put aside where I'm putting movies in there um, and just as a sort of uh, teaser for that um, a lot of the movies that I plan to make 31 uh, part of the 31 uh, days of horror uh, have not even been released yet Ooh, okay. on DVD but will be by the time October 1 rolls around neat okay it's a great plan I love it I'm very yep. excited and I'm intrigued to see what your number 2500 is going to be it's it's the one that I planned when I started this uh, in 2010. It's the one that I always wanted to make 2500 because it is the movie that inspired me to do this. Oh, that excellent. inspired me to sort of undertake this challenge. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. I cannot um, wait. Anyway, uh, also you can find me on Twitter at DVD Infatuation. Um, I do have a Facebook page. And I am in the Universal Monsters cast mm-hmm. um, with uh, Joel Robertson and Wolfman Josh. I love that freaking um, show over it's there. It's great. It's 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 a lot of fun. And you know, um, uh, with the mummy out, and you know, we've had some discussions about that. But yeah, there's still a lot to talk about. Oh with yeah. Universal. I mean, we have so much more to talk about. So much more to cover um, with Universal Monsters. Um, so definitely, you know, subscribe over there as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as an update on Land of the Creeps, um, I haven't been in touch with Greg really recently. I know that he is still committed at some point to to um, starting the show up again 
last time we talked, he did mention that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know when it's going to be. It may not be during the summer. I'll be honest. It, it may not be during the summer. No definite plans have been laid okay. for when Land of the Creeps are going to be coming back. Uh, but I know Greg has been, you know, active once again. He had disappeared from all the social media, but he is active once again on the social media. Mm-hmm. He's just going through some things. He moved recently and he's got some personal issues going on. So it was probably just a good time, a good idea for him to sort of step away for a while. Sure, absolutely. Uh, but but Greg, Greg Morris, I don't think he's going to step away completely. He's been podcasting for how long now? Oh. 2008, 2009. He's, well, he's one of the long time, one of the old timers. He, he's a veteran, and you know, yeah. like honestly, uh, of all like you know the people who you know write and talk and podcast mm-hmm. about horror, like he he is committed. To helping Absolutely. keep horror alive. I mean, that is his, his mantra. And he's, <laughs> and he's one of the genuine great guys. He's a really great guy. Yeah. You know, very genuine, just very, very down to earth. And you, that comes through during the show. He's legit. Um, anybody who anybody who knows him, talks to them, you know, uh, knows that's the truth. So he loves um, he loves Halloween more than anybody I have ever known. And no doubt, I think. And Dr. Shock, my favorite thing about Greg Amortis, uh, I, I mean, I have a lot of favorite things. I love that guy. But one of my favorite things is is I actually know his favorite movie treat when he watches horror movies. Do you want to hear it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he likes to eat ice cream when he watches horror movies, which I think I is think awesome. I think I remember him saying that. Yeah, that is great. That's really cool. Yeah. So That's I'm, really cool. I'm yep. a big fan of his. And please tell him. I've said this before, but I, I hope you tell him this. And maybe, maybe we can get the listeners tweeting at him or something. In the meantime, if he, you know, if he's get got an itch to talk about some horror flicks, he needs to join us over here, come be oh, a guest, yeah. and I'll worry, absolutely, you know, I'll worry about all the editing and production crap, and he doesn't have to do any of that. He just shows up, talks about horror, yeah. and uh, I bet the listeners would uh, love it. I, I agree. I, I think they would too. I mean, he really brought it during the slashers oh, yes. episode, um, and that is his forte. I mean, he mm-hmm. loves the eighty slashers. He absolutely loves them. He was like the the, the uh, he was like the no-brainer guest to bring on. Oh yeah, for, for the slasher series, but um, but he likes all horror. I mean, he just he really likes them. We were getting into watching some of the newer releases from 2016 that he didn't get a, didn't get a chance to catch up with. And I know he was a big fan of I'm Not a Serial Killer. He was a big fan of the Autopsy of Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. So um, so he just likes horror in general. And he's a he's just a zombie man. Fan. I mean, he loves zombie movies yeah, too. Absolutely, which I respect absolutely. about him. So yep, yep. Yes, sir. No so doubt. that's that's uh, Land of the Creeps, and uh, yeah, he's on Twitter. It's like at Greg Amortis, right? Greg Amortis. Yep, it's Greg Amortis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tweet him over there, listeners. Do us a favor and say, "Hey, HMP, once you come back as a guest, why don't you pop on over there?" <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I'll send him a message too, saying, "Hey, if he wants to, if he gets the itch, and he just kind of wants to ease back into it, definitely join us on uh, on yes. HMP." We would be honored to have. Absolutely. Him. Yep. All right, brother. Well, hey, Dave, thanks for being here tonight. Once again, you, uh, I appreciate your reviews and you, uh, you gracing us with your filmic encyclopedic knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Always fun. Always fun to talk about horror movies. So I'm definitely going to be looking into that whole um, the October, the, the mid-October meetup. Yep. I'm definitely going to see if I can swing at, oh, man. Swing getting out there this year. We would love it. October 14th, everybody. And, and, and Dave... 
Make sure you go to some sandwich places and look for some. That's what I'm going to say. I mean, everyone, like what Josh was saying, everybody can, you know, sort of go to their own place for dinner. Tell me about that damn sandwich places. <laughs> I'll go over there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind getting a free sandwich. We'll be like, guys, here he is, the Dr. Yeah. Shock himself. Right. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure that wraps up episode 121 of Horror Movie Podcast. We thank you for listening to all of that. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you'll join us very soon. We actually got a release coming out right after this, uh, within days, and it's for our themed episode, Shark Attack Volume 1. So make sure, if you like shark horror movies, uh, you know, tune in for that one. We got a lot of films to talk about with you. Check out Wolfman Josh at Movie Streamcast. He's on Twitter, linked in the show notes. And both my co-hosts, Wolfman Josh and Dr. Shock, are found over at Universal Monsters Cast. Don't forget our Movie Podcast Network meetup, which is coming October 14th, 2017, here in Salt Lake City. We would love to see you there. I also hope you'll check out our sister show, Movie Podcast Weekly, which is where we review new movies that are in theaters of all genres. So check us out. It's a kind of a comedy show, pretty silly. Also check out the rest of our network, which is the Sci-Fi Podcast, Retro Movie Geek. You got um, Comedy Movie Podcast coming soon. We Deal in Lead, which is a Western podcast that's coming very soon. And then we also have Movie Streamcast and Universal Monsters Cast, as I mentioned. We love your comments, so get involved in the Horror Movie Podcast community. You can leave a comment in the show notes for this episode, 121, or email us at horrormoviepodcast at gmail.com. Call and leave us a voicemail at 801-382-8789, or find all of our episodes, including the weekly Horror Movie Podcast and Horror Metropolis back archives, on our website at horrormoviepodcast.com. You can subscribe free in iTunes, and you can follow us on Twitter at HorrorMovieCast. We're also on Instagram. We want to thank Fred Ingram for the use of his music for the Horror Movie Podcast theme song. You can find Fred's music at FrederickIngram.com. We also want to thank Kagan Breitenbach for his orchestration of Fred's original theme music. You can find Kagan's work at KaganBreitenbach.com. We'll have those linked in the show notes. And I think that's it for episode 121. We thank you for listening and join us again just in a few days for Horror Movie Podcast, where we're dead serious about horror movies. Horror Movie Podcast.